Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. This episode will be my final thoughts on the book of Genesis. And for those of you who have been listening for a while, you know that I conclude every book with a final episode that are my summary thoughts over the entire book. Genesis is a large book, obviously 50 chapters. It has taken us quite a while to get through it. We did get through it, however, and uh, so this may be a little bit I like to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I don't like to put too many divisions within a book because I like for the reader, the Bible student, to read those things for his or herself and let the Holy Spirit kind of show you where uh, maybe one section ends and the next section begins. Or you could think of it maybe as where one theme Uh, within the same book, kind of draws to a close, and then another theme begins or opens up. And so I did not approach the book of Genesis the way I'm going to suggest here. But I introduced this idea because Genesis is such a large book, and when you go back through it on your time, with your quiet time, with the Lord, and you're doing your own study, you can break the book of Genesis up into smaller parts so that it won't seem so overwhelming when you look at 50 chapters. And so 
I'll offer this for your comparison and for your study. Section one would be from the creation to the fall of man. Section two would be from the fall of man to the great flood of Noah. Section three would be the post-flood time period. In other words, when Noah steps off of the boat with his family and all the animals up to the Tower of Babel. Section four would be the fall of the Tower of Babel. And, or you could think of that as the beginning of nations up to the time where Abraham is called out by God from among all the other nations. Section five would be Abraham's life up to and through the beginning portion of Isaac's life. And then, of course, Abraham passes away, leading us to section six, which would be Isaac's life up through Jacob's life. And then Isaac passes away. And we come to section seven, which would be Jacob up to Joseph and the end of the book of Genesis. Or if you wanted to think of it this way, uh, Jacob has his name changed uh, to Israel. And you could say from Israel through the beginning of their sojourn in Egypt. If you wanted to think of that last section that way. So we see the beginning of their stay in Egypt. And as we have discussed, and for those of you who know the scriptures, you know that the book of Exodus deals with their 400 years of captivity in the nation of Egypt. And of course, the fulfillment of prophecy, one of the things that God promised Abraham would happen to his descendants. So a second point that I want to bring out is the way that I took on evolution from the very beginning of our study in Genesis. And remember that I stated from the beginning that a true evolutionist cannot believe the Bible and a true Bible believer cannot believe evolution. Now, I know that there are people who try to do that. I've known many people who have tried to do that. And let me just say at this point, let me pause here for a second. I long for the day when evolution will finally be destroyed. May God hasten the day. And as we continue on in my final thoughts here, I'm going to dig into that a little bit deeper. But evolution is destructive. It is a lie of Satan. But friends, if you think you can be a Christian and believe in the Bible and believe in evolution, or if you're an evolutionist and you think there's some room for a God like the one in the Bible, something like that, and you want to try to merge the two systems together, I just want to challenge you, no matter which side you come from, you are being inconsistent. And I'm not telling you that you can't hold to those beliefs. I'm just going to tell you that you're not being consistent. And I will explain why. True evolution has no place for a God. And you need to let that kind of soak into your brain. I know I talked about this early on in the book of Genesis. If you're going to be an evolutionist, you cannot believe 
and the God of the Bible. The systems are incompatible with one another. By the same token, dear Christian, if you are going to be a Christian, there is no place for evolution in your thinking for that very reason, because you believe in a God, and evolution really has no God except possibly man himself. Now, I do want to explain what I mean when I say the word evolution. So macroevolution cannot be proven, and that's a bold statement for me to make. And regardless of what famous atheists and philosophers and those who debate these things might say, it cannot be proven. And a true, honest evolutionist knows that macroevolution is a theory. And I would assert that from the very beginning, it violates scientific method because it has never been observed. And they know it. They absolutely know it. And they know they have a problem. Now, microevolution has been observed, and therefore it doesn't break scientific method, and it can be proven. And the thing about microevolution is that it is actually very compatible with what we read in the Bible. It allows for changes within kinds. And we talked about this early on in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And it fits very well within the flood account. And I guess what I'm really driving at here, friends, is that this idea that human beings share a common predecessor with apes cannot be proven. If you've ever heard the phrase, the missing link, what they're talking about when they say that is they're talking about a transitional form that wasn't quite an ape and it wasn't quite a human. It was something in between. And from that predecessor or the one who came before, it branched off through evolutionary means into maybe two or several branches, one of those branches being human. And friends, the reason they call it the missing link is because it has never been found. And I will tell you with great boldness and great faith in God standing upon his word that it will never be found. It will never be found because it does not exist. What we do see happening is variation within the same kind. And this doesn't violate scripture in the least because, and I think I may have given these examples uh, in the very first episode of the book of Genesis, or maybe it was the second episode. That's why this is a summary and final thoughts. You'll have to go back and find out where I mentioned these things. But the point is, Within dogs, for example, we have poodles and German shepherds and we have Great Danes and Doberman Pinchers and who knows what all else we have, mutts of all kinds and pit bulls and uh, Rottweilers and I don't even know what all else because I'm not a dog person. But the point is, there is variation there. There's obvious variation, but you don't start off with something that's not a dog or was a dog and end up with something else. They are all dogs. It's the same with elephants. There are elephants with small ears relative to the other elephants who have large ears. There are difference in tusks, but 
they're still elephants. You see what I'm saying? Look at the difference between horses, but they're still horses. So we have, as Christians, we have no problem at all saying there's variation within the same species or what the Bible might call kind. And remember how we talked about everything is reproducing after its own kind. No problem with that whatsoever. What we're saying as Christians is that you don't start off with one kind or an unknown kind that's not a horse or (laughs) something else. And you go through these evolutionary changes over time and you end up with something new. That's what we're saying. What I really want to get into is if you truly are an evolutionist, you need to know the history of evolution and where it came from and some of the claims that it made early on. It promotes racism historically, and it allows for humans to truly have no moral foundation for anything called right or wrong or good or evil. Now, I want you to hear me on this. I'm not saying that an evolutionist or an atheist or a materialist, that they cannot use those terms. They certainly can. They do it all the time. What I'm saying is they have no moral basis to do so, and they have no reason to do so. If evolution is true, then as Jeff Durbin has said, if anybody knows who Jeff Durbin is, then we are all just really bags of stardust. We are a series of chemical accidents and mistakes happen purely random by chance with no external guidance whatsoever. And I'm just a bag of chemicals fizzing in one way and you are a bag of chemicals fizzing in another way. We happen to fizz a little bit differently, generally maybe the same, but there is Nothing wrong if I want to kill you. That's not wrong. You think it's wrong, maybe, but my brain happens to be fizzing a little bit differently than yours. Evolution attempts to explain things from a material point of view, but it cannot explain things that are immaterial. Things like love, hate, concepts of good, and evil, the idea of a conscience, the laws of logic. These things are not accounted for in an evolutionary model. And those philosophers and evolutionists who are truthful about these things, and I know because I've read it, don't ask me to quote the source right now, (laughs) but I have read where they admit this is a dilemma for them because they know that there are things outside the material universe that are concepts which we use in our daily lives. And these concepts cannot be explained through evolutionary processes. And they know this to be true. You and I, as Christians, when we use terms like good, bad, evil, right, wrong, hate, love, etc., (laughs) we say those things because we are appealing to something outside of ourself. In other words, I am making a truth claim. 
I am saying that something is definitely right and something is definitely wrong. And the reason that I'm saying that is because it's based upon the law giver, the one who ultimately decides not based on my opinion. See, it's not subjective. I don't get to say what is right. And then you have a slightly different opinion and you say, no, it's wrong. And I go, no, it's right. And you say, no, it's wrong. There is a source outside of us that is absolute. And as a Christian, it is that source that I appeal to. The evolutionist cannot appeal to that source because they have no God. Anytime you get into a discussion with an evolutionist, you need to consistently make them stand on their foundation. Their foundation is not the Bible, so therefore anything the Bible says is not theirs, it's mine, because I believe the Bible. So they have to stand on their foundation, and their foundation is misguided or unguided, I should say, accidental, chem accidental chemical combinations that randomly came together with no guidance and created ultimately over time through many, many mutations, what we see today, created humans, make them stand on that foundation and tell me why Hitler was wrong. In fact, Hitler's ideas were based in eugenics and eugenics goes back even into the late 19th century where people were beginning to come up with ideas that things like poverty and things like promiscuity, sexual promiscuity, things like this were genetically transferred and you could eliminate the poor. You could eliminate the so-called immoral by removing them from the gene pool. And these things are just facts. I mean, it's just, it's just history. Just go back and read it, read their own writings. And so Hitler was actually, from an evolutionary point of view, he was doing a good thing because he believed in a superior race that was superior to the Jews. And of course, he wanted to kill the Jews because he was trying to clean up the gene pool so that humankind could move forward in an evolutionary process. And folks, this is a fact. It's not my opinion. Go do your research, dig it out, and you will find that I'm correct quite long enough. There's so much more to it. Listen to my entire study. I cite many sources, uh, many books, and a couple of uh, films. There are resources available, and it will surprise you what is out there. These ideas are not settled in the scientific community. There are scientists who know that they have a serious dilemma. There are folks who started off as evolutionary scientists and through the drawing of the Holy Spirit and their own study, they came to the conclusion that there had to be a God. And ultimately, after researching all the world's religion, they come to Christianity because of the unique claims of Christ and, of course, the call of the Holy Spirit upon their life. Like I said, I've, I've gone on and on about that. I do want to talk about another thing that I brought up along these same lines, the age dating factors, and, and then I'm going to leave the, I, uh, the concepts of evolution. I'm going to leave that and move on because there's a lot more to Genesis than the conflict 
between creation and evolution. There's the issue of uh, age dating factors and fossils. And I'm, like I said, I'm not going to try to explain everything here. This is a review and a summary, even though I've gone on quite long about these ideas. Evolution has a big problem, not only in the issues I've already raised, but I kind of alluded to this a minute ago. There are no transitional forms in the fossil record, and I will not let that go. I have heard evolutionists try to explain that away, but they do so because their own theory has had to change. And I take them back to the beginning of their foundation, which is all life, as you see it today, came from something else. There are common predecessors all over the place. And the truth is, Darwin even admitted if he can't find them in the fossil record, then his whole theory falls apart. But they don't want you to know that. There are no transitional forms in the fossil record. But Noah's flood, as the Bible records it, can explain layers of sediment that we find all over the world and mountain ranges and places like the Grand Canyon. And it's really all over the world. And you find within these layers fossilized trees that cut through the columns that are supposed to be aged at different time periods. And so how do you have a tree <laughs> that survived for all those billions of years among all those layers? And the truth is you don't. But if you have a flood where there was literally an explosion from underground as the springs of water came up from underground and slammed layers of sediment back down on trees before they had a chance to even fall over it would explain why you have a tree cutting through all the different layers, all the different ages. A flood would explain why you have fossils to begin with. If you take an animal who has uh, deceased and you leave them out in the field in the weather and the rain and what have you, they will eventually, through natural processes, decay and rot. And there won't be anything left. There won't be a fossil left. But if you were to take an animal and slam them between two pieces of wet sediment, you would have an impression that would be left long after the animal is dissolved. And it would also explain the twisted nature and the awkward positions that we find fossils in as they are all broken and twisted up, almost as if they were struggling for their life whenever their life was snuffed out by a global flood. So those are just a few things. And I would mention, uh, among other things, uh, a list that I gave earlier uh, in our study of Genesis. Um, there is no new creation taking place. Evolution cannot point to a single place anywhere where new creation is taking place. Matter tends to change in a downward direction, not an upward direction. And what we mean by that is things left to themselves tend to deteriorate and become more confused, not more organized. They mutate, certainly, but out of those mutations come nothing but deformities and illness and sickness and confusion. 
Complexity of cells is another issue, and this gets into the idea of irreducible complexity. Just because you have something that's really, really small, like a cell, it, it doesn't mean that it's simple. In fact, we know that cells are extremely complex, and the idea was that there were these simple building blocks. As technology has advanced and as we have looked deeper and deeper into the cell, we find more and more there are things going on within even human cells that we do not fully understand. And we can always ask the question, what is that made out of? And that tends to go on forever. And that's what we mean by irreducible complexity. I've already talked about fossil dating and and there are inaccuracies within the, within the fossil record. And it especially gets troubling when they find creatures that were thought to be extinct and they find them still living today. Doesn't happen every day, and I'm, that's not my claim. I am saying that it has happened once or twice. Mutations uh, don't equal new species. There's no proof of that. In the evolutionary model, the moon is too close to the earth, and this actually supports a young earth. Uh, the salt content of the oceans tends to support a young earth theory. There, in other words, if we, we can measure the rate of minerals in uh, the ocean, in the world's ocean, and the overall, it is increasing, and that rate uh, can be measured, and it can also be rewound through time. And what you find is that you actually have fresh water um, covering the face of the earth at or around, give or take a few, at or around the time of Noah's flood. Um, so we, evolution has a problem with that. Um, you know, where did the matter come from, which started everything? There was a big bang according to evolution that was supposed to happen 13 to 15 billion years ago. But then that is a problem because we know that the universe has a finite amount of energy. So there's, in other words, there's a limit to the energy. And so that implies that it had a beginning and it will have an end because this feeds into that second law of thermodynamics. And so on and on it goes, gas and dust and clouds, they expand. They do not contract to form planets and heavenly bodies. And these are known facts. Everything that I've mentioned here, and I've been very brief, I haven't really gone into it as deeply as it as you could. I mean, you could spend an entire entire podcast on any one of those single points, and that's not my my intention here. I'm just wanting you to know as a Christian, you don't have to be afraid of this argument. And I'm letting you know as an evolutionist these are serious problems for you. Now, your neighbor, your friend, your coworker who has only a surface knowledge of these things, they may not buy it. And they may be glad to point out all the ways in which I'm being inconsistent or you're being inconsistent. But the truth of the matter is those who study the philosophers, the evolutionists, the materialist, the, um, the physics professor that I knew in Arizona, Many of them, when you can get them to be honest, they know that creation is implied. 
whether uh, they want to say it's the Christian God or not, they know that evolutionary thought cannot hold up under these arguments. I'm going to move on to my third point now, and I would just encourage you to go back, listen to my earlier episodes. I give many references, many references that I'm not going to go into here. Go back, listen to the episodes, look those references up for yourself, both from a biblical point of view and from a secular or non-biblical point of view. The third point I wanted to bring out was that as we took our journey through Genesis, I stressed something called internal proofs, and I gave many references to other passages of Scripture. And the reason I did that was because I wanted to stress to the believer, and really the non-believer alike, that if Genesis cannot be trusted then the entire Bible falls apart. So you don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say, this part I like and I agree with because it already aligns with what I presuppose and and I will believe this, but I'm not going to believe that. And, and the reason that I say, the, the reason I word it that way and I say it that way is because when we study the life of Christ, he believed that passages in Genesis were true. And he quoted from them and he pointed the religious leaders of his time and his disciples and others, he pointed them back to Genesis. If Genesis is not true, then there's no such thing as original sin. And the whole, the whole foundation of Christianity is that we are born in sin, we are born under the first Adam, and we inherited his sin nature. The Bible tells us that in Adam all sinned, and that is necessary because the second Adam comes, Jesus Christ, and he did not sin. So you are either born into the first Adam, who failed, or you are born into the second Adam, who did not fail. And of course, this is where we get the term, one of the places we get the term, being born again, being born of the Spirit. You see, it is the Holy Spirit that comes into the life of the believer and regenerates them. What does that mean? It means your spiritual man, which was dead, now comes alive. And now for the first time ever in your natural life, in your physical life, your spiritual eyes are opened. You can now choose to do the right things because you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been saved. You have been born again into the second Adam. And this is just one example. There are many. I've listed many passages of Scripture throughout our journey through Genesis that reflect back to Genesis and even in the third chapter of Genesis, we have the prophecy of the coming seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. So I just want to stress to you, uh, I may have even demonstrated this in every single episode. I don't know. I don't remember to be totally honest, but I know that it is throughout the entire study where we make references to books in the New Testament, books in the Old Testament, poetry, prophecy, 
history, the gospels, and on it goes. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, it is consistent within itself. And I encourage you to look at those internal proofs for yourself. And then you have to decide, you know, the skeptic would look at the Bible, and I know because I've spoken to many skeptics, and they will say things like, the Bible was changed over time, and they would see a prophecy fulfilled, and then they would go back and they would insert it into the old documents to make it look like the prophecy was fulfilled. And there are, I mean, that is just, it is so, uh, how can, I'm trying to be gentle. It's ignorance. It is not understanding how textual criticism is done and how documents have been recovered and discovered and preserved and the whole entire process. And it is true not only for sacred scripture. This is how we know anything about anything when it comes to ancient history. It is, it, it, there's rules to uh, this kind of document recovery. If there are insertions like that, if there are attempts to do that, they are easily discovered because of the science and really the art of um, ancient manuscripts. Those who study anthropology and those who study linguistics and they know these things, uh, they will do a much better job than I am right now of defending it. But it is ludicrous and it can be demonstrated that it's just, it's ignorance. The accounts that we have today in our English translation of the Bible are almost nearly exact what they were in the original um, manuscripts and the oldest manuscripts that we have. And I mean, those, those are just facts. Those are absolute uh, unquestionable facts. So I would say to the skeptic, um, you're going to have to come up with a different excuse because that idea won't fly. And even people who are not Christians admit that that can't be because the evidence doesn't support it. So uh, point number four, another point that I stressed throughout our uh, study of Genesis was the summary nature of the entire book. These 50 chapters cover roughly the first 2,000 years of human history and really from the time of creation, as I said, all the way up until Israel's beginning of their time in the land of Egypt. And so we've got to remember as we go through these narratives that the book records what happened. It doesn't necessarily record the why it happened or how it happened. It does give us an overview and a summary. Imagine trying to cover 2000 years of world history and with the central theme being the covenant people of God, and you've got to do it in 50 chapters. You can't you can't just take volumes and volumes, you know, you can't take it year by year. You have to be, you have to provide a summary. And so, of course, we believe as Christians that the words that are there are inspired by the Holy Spirit. As um, the Bible tells us, when the breath of God moved upon the hearts of men and they wrote exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. So every last possible detail of everything there ever was can't possibly be recorded. And, you know, even remember in the book of John, you know, John says about Jesus 
that he did not even record all the miracles that he saw Jesus do, that if he tried to record all the miracles that Jesus did, that all the books of the world couldn't contain it all. What's he saying there? He's saying, I'm giving you a summary. I'm, <laughs> I'm giving you a condensed version, a fraction of the things that I personally witnessed. And so it's the same as we go through the book of Genesis. And Genesis has a theme, and the theme is this. It is the fall of man and God's plan to glorify himself through a covenant people who would ultimately bring forth the promised Messiah. So the failures and the sins of many of our characters throughout the book of Genesis, it's all there and it's there for everyone to see. But so is the grace and the mercy and the love of our God. And again, skeptics have come to me before pointing out all the failures of these men as if that's an indictment against the authenticity of the Bible. And they'll say things like, well, you said this guy's a holy guy, but look at all the stuff he did. And <laughs> again, it's just, it, it's not even an intelligent argument. There is no other faith in the world, no other false religion out there that so clearly puts, puts it all out there for you to see. And I address this a little bit in one of the uh, episodes where I talk about if I was going to put together a religion and I was going to write about the heroes of my religion, I wouldn't put in some of the things that we find recorded in scripture. And yet we don't hide those things and as Christians, we know it's there in the Bible. So why is it there? It's there to show us by example, by the lives of these men and uh, women, failure they might be, God's grace is greater. A fifth thing that I did through the book of Genesis, I encouraged you to consider that the world and everything in it was very different in a pre-flood era, and I would even go so far as to say even after the flood, things were different. As time moves forward, we, we move further and further away from that beginning point of creation. And I will just share with you, and I may have mentioned this before, but I will bring it up again. I've had a very God-blessed life. I have seen the great pyramids of Egypt. There's actually more than one. <laughs> I've seen Stonehenge. I have stood on the Great Wall of China. I have, even back in high school, we took a trip to Mexico and I saw the pyramids there. I don't think I had the appreciation for it as a young person that I would have today. Nevertheless, I saw these huge structures and the precision that went into them. I used to live in Arizona in a town called Casa Grande and right outside of Casa Grande, actually in the next town over in the town of Coolidge, there is this adobe house, the Casa Grande, the large house. And it was constructed probably over a thousand years ago. We don't know for sure. And there is a foundation there of an entire city in the middle of the desert, these ruins that are there. 
and they weren't just haphazardly thrown together. These structures align with astronomical events. They align with stars and the uh, equinox and I'm sure many other things. I've, I've been to the Anasazi Indian ruins in New Mexico and I have seen mounds. I have seen structures on this earth and it's the world over. It's not just in a couple of places. And so what am I driving at? I'm saying that the world that we see today is a very different world than the world of the ancients. And I encourage you when you read the book of Genesis to remember that just because we see something operating a certain way today does not mean that it was that way in the past. I personally believe there is a history that has been lost here that we don't know anything about. These huge structures are a testament to that. And, and I just believe that they were put here. These structures were built by humans. They were not put here by ancient aliens. And I encourage you to do your own research and you will find that all those theories begin to fall apart and all the stuff you've seen on discovery channel and everything else it's extremely biased and they don't give you the whole story. They don't keep things in context and they just really go out on a limb because they have an agenda and they want to make it more mysterious than it is. And they want to say that we're all descendants from space aliens and that space aliens came down and did all these huge structures on the planet. I would say, no, these structures were put here by humans and there has been a technology that was lost and there is a history that lines up with the biblical timeline, but it does not line up with an evolutionary timeline because there were clearly advances in technology that we no longer have. And the precision in these structures is amazing. And so all that just to say, as you read the book of Genesis, think of it in terms of a different world where things were very different than the way we see them today. And then probably the last theme, as I give you my fi final thoughts here, the theme of grace, mercy, and love throughout the book of Genesis. Don't forget the theophanies that we talked about. And of course, the theophany is the physical appearance of God, God in the flesh. Don't forget the promises that God made he not only made, but he kept those promises to his people. Remember that the triune God is revealed throughout the whole scope of Genesis. We see God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And remember, as you do your own study and, and go back and review these things, we serve a God who sees, who hears, he knows, provides, he heals, he prospers. And ultimately, and you see this even in the book of Genesis, God saves. You see all of those themes in the book of Genesis, all of it. Hopefully you can see, dear Christian, 
why it is so important that we never give away the book of Genesis. If you want to give away the book of Genesis, you have given away your entire Bible. You have given away the Trinity. You have given away the concepts of love and mercy and peace. The concepts of a God who will provide for you, who hears you and knows you. You've given all that away. So I encourage you to do your own study on these things. As I always say, don't just take my word for it. Go dig these things out. I don't know everything. I do not claim to know everything. And there could be some things where I'm, you may have a different opinion than me, and that's okay. Christians can disagree. We have what I would call, I've heard called, I've heard other people say, in-house debates. It doesn't mean that we're not Christians, but there are finer points that we are allowed to disagree on. I could be wrong on my timeline. I don't think that I am. Obviously, these are the things that I hold to and believe. And I believe you can be a Christian and be wrong (laughs) about the timeline. But what we must never allow for is this concept that a man, that human beings are not image bearers of God, that human beings are nothing more than an animal. We're just a glorified animal. So no matter what timeline you may choose to go with, um, you will find that um, in Christian thinking, there is no room for anything other than your fellow man being an image bearer of God. And with that said, I kind of didn't have a script today. I used a few handwritten notes. Uh, That's why you may have heard the paper rustling like this. Normally I have things a lot more scripted out. You can probably tell But today I wanted to give you my final thoughts in very much uh, an extemporaneous way of speaking. And I hope that I've made some sense to you. I hope that this has been helpful and a blessing. Our intention at this point is to take a small break. I wanted to be finished with Genesis by the time we got through uh, or the beginning of March. Uh, We have actually been doing the Forge podcast now for one full year. We're going to take a slight break and come back with season three. And in season three, I hope to have a new theme music. I'm going to work on a few techniques. When I started this podcast, I knew nothing about production. I knew nothing about how to make a podcast. I learned a few things here and there. As I've stated before, I've written some uh, new songs. I have invested in some new equipment and hopefully we can do things a little bit better and the production quality will continue to improve any questions comments that you have please feel free to leave those there are um, instructions on how to do that in the show notes and as always may god bless you as you contemplate these things dear christian I hope you grow in your faith, and I hope these things encourage you. And if you happen to be listening to this and you don't know Christ, ultimately what I hope for you is that you would consider his claims. Maybe you have thought about it before. I'm asking you to reconsider. I know the Holy Spirit will do his work because he never fails. Bye-bye for now.
Thank you again for listening to the Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in Him.